Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So on November 10th, in 1483, just a few years ago, there was a boy who was born to a miner and his wife in Eisleben, Saxony. And in 1501, this boy attended the University of Erfurt, and he became a lawyer. And on July 2nd, 1505, he was walking outside, and uh, there was a very heavy thunderstorm that was occurring at the time, and the young man cried out to St. Anne, and St. Anne was the patron saint of miners and sailors. She was the protector of storms. And this young man cried out, help St. Anna, and I will become a monk. And he survived the thunderstorm, and he kept his vow. He left lawyer school, law school. He sold his books, and he became an Augustinian monk. And the young man's name was Martin Luther. And if there was ever a sincere, earnest, conscientious monk, it was Martin Luther. No one surpassed him in long hours of prayer, He frequently fasted, he frequently confessed, he frequently went on pilgrimages. Nobody surpassed him that time. And he had a motivation for all that. His motivation was concern for his salvation. When he was 20 years old, he saw his first complete Latin Bible. And he was blown away when he read it because he was surprised that it contained so much more than was ever read or explained in the churches that he had attended. One concept that Martin Luther wrote or read, excuse me, that troubled him though in scriptures was the concept of the righteousness of God. He just he just grappled with that over and over again. And in his own words, he said this I worked diligently to understand what Paul said in Romans 1:17. A righteousness from God is revealed in the gospel. I searched for a long time and tried to understand it again and again, but the Latin words for a righteousness from God were in my way. God's righteousness is usually defined as the characteristic by which he is sinless and condemns the sinner. All the teachers except Augustine interpreted God's righteousness as God's anger. So every time I read it, I wished that God had never revealed the gospel. Who could love a God who is angry and who judges and condemns us? That was in Martin's own words. In all of Martin's praying and all of his fasting and all the things that he did, self-mortification, the pilgrimages, everything, he never found peace. He went on a pilgrimage once to Rome. And as he was on his way there, he's crossing the Alps and he fell deathly ill. And as he lay sick, He felt great turmoil, both physically because he was sick, but also spiritually because that that those scriptures were just haunting him. And a verse that had previously touched him came to his mind: "The just will live by his faith." It's from Habakkuk two four. If you were here last week, we we talked about that as we're in Habakkuk. When Luther recovered, he went on, continued on his pilgrimage to Rome, and he came to the church of Saint John's Lateran, and uh, he wished that his parents were already dead. His parents were still alive at the time, but he wished they were dead because then he could actually 
say a mass in uh, St. John's Lateran there, and uh, that would help them out of purgatory because that was the saying in those days. The saying was, Blessed is the mother whose son celebrates Mass on Saturday in St. John of the Lateran. I mean, he was so excited about being there in Rome. Well, at the church of St. John of the Lateran, there was a staircase, and this staircase was somehow miraculously transported from Jerusalem to Rome. And it was said to be the staircase that Jesus climbed leading up to Pontius Pilate's judgment hall. And it was the custom of pilgrims to climb this staircase. But they didn't just walk up the staircase. They climbed up it step by step on their knees on this cold, hard stone staircase. They painfully climbed step by step on their knees, saying prayers and kissing the steps And there was little marks on the steps or little stones on the steps that were supposedly where the blood of Jesus was dropped as he was going up the stairs. And so they would go up the stair and they would kiss those spots and saying prayers. Well, Luther came to this place and like all the other pilgrims, he started climbing the stairs on his knees. The Pope, by the way, had promised an indulgence to all who climbed the steps on their knees and said the prayers. So there was a spiritual motivation behind it. But as Luther was climbing these stairs, a verse came back to him, and he kept thinking about it. The just will live by faith. And it said that when he remembered this, he stopped. He stood up, he walked down, and he went went home to Germany. And a lot of people say that that's when the Reformation began on those very steps with that passage of Scripture. And although this verse, the just will live by his faith, faith was God's word to Habakkuk, who was an Old Testament prophet, this verse took on a whole deeper meaning with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 three times in the New Testament. And each time there's an emphasis on a different aspect of this verse. Uh, it's in relation, of course, to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's as if this verse is like a cut and polished gem, and the Apostle Paul is turning it, and he's looking at a facet of it, and like, oh, that's beautiful. Turning it again, and he's seeing another facet, and turning it yet one more time and seeing another facet. Well, this morning, we're going to examine each of those facets of this beautiful gem found in Habakkuk 2.4. So the very first passage we're going to look at is found in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's in Romans. If you want to follow along, please feel free to. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. The facet that Paul is examining of this gem in this passage of Scripture in Romans is the word of the term, the just. What does it mean to be just? The word means to be righteous, to be upright, virtuous, keeping the commands of God thereby approved of or acceptable of God. That's what it means. Well, Paul would write in Romans 3, Chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. 
That leaves us with a major, major problem. The problem is stated back in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's no one just. There's no one righteous. And yet, God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. So when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel, and by the way, the word gospel, it basically just means good news of Jesus Christ. Why does he say that he's not ashamed? Because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Jews, Gentiles, anyone and everyone who believes the message of the gospel. Even today, even in our day and age, it's the power of God to salvation. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Notice it is God's righteousness. Salvation, you know, Christianity, it's not like man's, you know, belief system that they came up with these ideas. A lot of other cults and religions, they, they've came up with their own faith, basically, or their own belief system. This is God's righteousness. It's God's plan. It's not man's plan. Man didn't conceive of it, and man cannot attain it. It's God's righteousness. That's because Jesus Christ worked out it out in his life in perfect obedience to the Father. And notice it says, And the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's an interesting term, from faith to faith. It's not from faith to works. In other words, it doesn't start, you know, you don't start by believing it by faith, and then then you have to keep it by doing works. And it's not from works to faith. A lot of people today even think, you know, i got to clean up my life, i got to do all this stuff, and then I can come to God, then I can approach God. It's not, it's not from works to faith. It starts in faith, and it continues in faith. That's all it is. It's just faith. Well, how does that apply to us here this morning? Well, we've been justified by faith in Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. We've been declared just. We've been declared innocent. We've been declared righteous. When we repent of our sins and, you know, we're forgiven. But you know what? Justification goes beyond forgiveness. It's as if you've never sinned. That's an awesome concept. I don't know if you've ever said something or did something to someone and you hurt them. And you just saw the devastation that that you yourself have caused. And you've asked for forgiveness. And if they're gracious and, they, and you know, forgiving, they've forgiven you. But both you and, know, and they know what you did. There's that, there's that scar that's still there. They, you know what you did. They know what you did. But, they, but they've forgiven you. That's forgiveness. But you see, justification is just as if you didn't sin. It's completely gone. We're declared just or righteous by faith in Christ's sacrifice for our sins. It's as if we've never sinned. The next time Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 is in his letter to the Galatians. The just shall live by faith. And again, it's like he's turning that gem one more, a little bit of an angle, and he's seeing another facet of this beautiful gem. And this time, what he's looking at is the, the live part of this verse. Paul starts out his letter to the Galatian Christians in Galatians 1.6, and he's writing to them. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. What was the problem? 
Well, the Galatian believers, they have been saved by faith in Christ's sacrifice on the cross from their sins, but now they were trying to live by works. That's basically legalism and not by faith. You see, what had happened was there was a group of teachers that had come from Jerusalem to Galatia, and they were known as the Judaizers. Who were the Judaizers? Luke describes them in Acts 11, verse 3. They were those of the circumcision. So these were believers, but they were those of the circumcision. You know what what gets me is their identity was more in what they stood for, either what they were for or what they were against, rather than they were just followers and lovers of Jesus Christ. They were those of the circumcision. They were Jewish believers in Christ who said faith in Christ alone was not enough. They told the Gentiles, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. That's no problem, you know, if you're trying to reach a Jewish man. You know, hey, if you, you know, trust in Christ for your salvation, you're, you're in. You know, you're good. But it's a much bigger issue if you're a Gentile man and you've come to put your faith in Christ and now they tell you that's not enough. You need to be circumcised as well. That's classic legalism. That has continued down from the centuries even to our day. It basically it means Jesus plus, and you can fill in the blank. Yeah, you, faith in Christ is great, but you also need this, or you need to do this, or you need to, you need to be this certain way or whatever. To the legalist, being born again is only the first step. You have to follow up your faith with works. For them, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to works. It's not faith to faith, it's faith to works. Because you actually have to do something to maintain your faith, your salvation. And it's actually not even their righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God. It's, it's their righteousness, I meant to say. And, of course, you know, it's interesting. It depends on which group of legalistics, legalistic people you listen to. It depends on what they say you have to do, right? In fact, in Romans 14, verse 5, you don't need to turn there, but Paul addresses another form of legalism. He says, One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. There are people that say, you know, you're truly not spiritual unless you worship God this way and on this day. If not, you're not saved. So how is the believer in Jesus Christ to live his or her life? Again, the just shall live by faith. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. See, if a person could earn God's favor by being good or doing certain things, if, that, if, if you could become righteousness or righteous by doing those things, then why did God send his son to die on the cross for our sin? In fact, you recall in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Jesus is agonizing the thought, the realization that soon he would be forsaken from the Father. The Father, you know, he was in perfect fellowship with the Father during his life and his ministry. And he knew there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew there was, a, there was coming a moment when that fellowship was going to be broken because he was taking on your and my sin on the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He cried out to the Father. He says, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. His prayer wasn't answered. There was silence. Why? Because there was no other way for man to be justified. Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins. And so Paul asked the Galatians there in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? See, the problem with trying to keep the law, it's that it's impossible to do. In verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Basically what he's saying, you know, if you're going to try to earn your own righteousness by keeping the law, the Bible says you have to keep the law perfect. And you have to keep all the law perfect. And you have to keep all the law perfectly all the time. Because if you violate that in any way, you're a lawbreaker. And so it's an impossibility. It's humanly impossible to keep the law, all the law, all the time. And so Paul's writing to these Galatian believers that are getting caught up in this legalism. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. So we have to live by faith in what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Well, how does that apply to you and I here this morning? You know, some Christians live their lives by their devotions. If their devotional life is good, and if it's consistent, they think well of themselves. They think, wow, i got a good relationship with the Lord because I'm, I'm, I'm doing these devotions. I'm 10, hour, or 10 minutes a day or an hour a day or 10 hours a day, whatever it is. You know, I, I feel good. I'm in a right relationship with the Lord because I'm doing my devotions. Some Christians live their life by works. Man, as long as they're doing something good, well, then they think well of themselves. Other Christians live their life by feelings. Man, as long as I feel good, things are good, you know? Or by circumstances. As long as circumstances are good, I'm good, you know? And if any of those things come out of kilter, man, I'm I'm a mess. Well, we're to live our life by faith in what Christ did. I have another quote from Martin Luther because he, you know, he struggled with the same thing. He says this, The righteousness Paul is speaking about here is external and comes from Christ living in us. It's not internal, and it doesn't come from ourselves. So if we are concerned about Christian righteousness, we must completely set aside the self. If I focus on myself, then I, be concerned about, then I become concerned about works and become subject to the law, whether I intend to or not. Instead, Christ and my conscience must become one so that I see nothing else except the crucified and risen Christ. If I ignore Christ and look only at myself, then I'm ruined. 
Soon I begin thinking, Christ is in heaven, I am on earth. How can I come to him? I'll try to live a holy life and do what the law requires so that I will find eternal life. If I consider myself, my condition, and what I should be doing, then I will always lose sight of Christ. He alone is my righteousness and my life. If I lose him, no one else will be able to help me. Despair and condemnation will certainly follow. Unfortunately, this happens all the time. When facing temptation or death, it's natural for us to ignore Christ and look at our own lives. If we aren't strengthened through faith during those times, we will perish. So during these struggles of conscience, we must learn to let go of ourselves. We must forget about the law and works. They will only drive us to look at ourselves. Instead, we must turn our eyes directly toward the bronze snake, Christ, the one nailed to the cross. We must fix our gaze upon him. When Martin Luther was talking about the bronze snake, he's talking about when the children of Israel were in the wilderness on their way. They were wandering through the wilderness, and there were people that were men of the children of Israel that were complaining to God. And many of them were dying. And so Moses, the interceder for his people, he he intercedes for his people, and he cries out to God, God, they're, they're all dying. And God says, okay, I want you to make a bronze snake and put it on a pole. I want you to stick it up on on the pole before the children of Israel, and the man who looks on that snake will be healed. Now, you can't imagine if you were one of the children of Israel, and they said, you know, know, you're dying, you're feeling sick or whatever, and they say, all you have to do is look at that snake. That's a step of faith, right? Because it's like, well, no, I'll just go to a doctor. Well, they didn't have doctors in the wilderness, but, you know, I'll do something. You know, you would try, some people would probably try to get well somehow. And all they had to do was look at the bronze snake and then be be made well. It's just, it's faith. That's all it is. And that's what Martin Luther is talking about. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look to our works, what we, you know, but that's such a temptation. It's our nature to do that. What we have to do is turn towards Christ, recognize that that's, it's his righteousness, it's not ours. So the just shall live by faith. Now the last time Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the scripture is in the letter to the Hebrews. And I said, Paul quoted it three times. Well, that's because I believe, personally, I believe that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. That's why I say he quoted it three times. But in any ways, in any event, in Hebrews, you turn it just one more facet, the just shall live by faith. The facet that we is exposed to us in the book of Hebrews is faith. See, in the letter to the Hebrews, Paul, or the writer, if you want to say it, uh, is encouraging the Hebrew believers. They had been facing incredible persecution because they were being accused of supposedly abandoning Judaism to follow the way of Jesus Christ alone. I mean, you know, even to this day, if you're a Jewish person and you put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're ostracized from your family. They say, well, you're, you're, not, a, what, what, you're not a Jew anymore. Like, what do you mean? But that's what they say. That's, what they, that's how they feel. And so these Hebrew believers, they were persecuted and persecuted and persecuted. And they were not trying to earn their own righteousness like the Galatians were. They were just simply tired of persecution. 
They were tired of being persecuted of their faith, and they wanted to return back to Judaism so that they could escape the persecution. Man, I'm tired of fighting. I'm just going to go back. Man, life would be a lot easier. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrews are reminded that the Mosaic laws of sacrifices under the Old Covenant can never take away their sins. Because if they could remove sins, the writer says, there would have been no need for a new covenant. And so in verse 11 of chapter 10, we read, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You know, Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb. Forty days later, or three days later, he arose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven. I got that little mess messed up there. But, you know, his sacrifice for sin was accomplished and is accomplished once and for all. It's a done deal. And what did he do when he accomplished his sacrifice? It says that he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Why? Well, because the work is done. There was nothing more for him to do. You know, there are people in life who are never at rest spiritually. They're always constantly striving to earn their own righteousness. You know, the thing is, they don't have to. If they would just realize that Christ paid the price once and for all, and all they need to do is trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Martin Luther is a perfect example He was never at rest until he learned what it meant that the just shall live by faith. Well, in verse 15 of chapter 10, we read, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So not only are we forgiven of our sins, but there is remission of our sins. Now, that's not a term we use too frequently. But under the Old Covenant, when they, when they would sacrifice a bull or a, or a goat or whatever, the sins... They were covered over. They weren't removed. They were just covered over. And, you know, every year they went through the Day of Atonement once a year. And, and so, you know, you might feel good about yourself, and then, but you'd be reminded every year, oh, man, I'm still a sinner. I still need to sacrifice. You know, I still need to do the, the sacrifice for atonement. Every year there was a reminder every year of sin. But you see, under the better covenant with the better sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, Not only are our sins forgiven, but they're removed from us. And how far are they removed? You know, that says in the book of Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far have our sins been removed from us. Have you ever gone east and hit a sign that says you're now traveling west? You don't. You just keep driving east. In fact, you'll run out of gas before you, you know, you'll just be driving, driving, going east if you're driving. You know, you'll never hit west. Same if you go west, you'll never hit east. Now, it's not true if you go north, eventually you'll go south. But east and west, they never meet. That's how far Christ has removed our sins from us. You're never going to meet him again. What a blessing that is. 
So where the sin has been removed, the writer is saying there's no purpose for more sacrifices. It's done. And so we read in verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How are we to draw near to God with a clean heart? It's not what the scripture says. With a pure heart? Uh Uh-uh. It says with a true heart. That basically means in humility admitting that we're sinners. That's how we're to approach Christ, just in humility. Lord, I've blown it again. You don't have to clean up your act to draw near to God. You know, it doesn't matter if you've been out of fellowship with him for 10 years or 10 minutes. As long as you come to him in truth, true about who you are and your condition, he'll draw near to you. In fact, that's what the Bible says. If we draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. What a, what a blessing. How freeing is that? Then in verse 23 of chapter 10, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And I got to tell you, I look at the news, I look at things that are happening, and I think the day is approaching soon. So if that's the case, how much more should we be gathering together as a body? How much more should we be encouraging one another on a daily, weekly, constant basis? And so the writer here says, hold fast to the confession. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. I'm not always faithful. But God always is faithful. And then in verses 26 to 31, and we're not going to read them, he warns these Hebrew believers that if they turn away from Christ's sacrifice for sin and return to the sacrifices of the old covenant, there's no more sacrifice for their sin. And he says they will have trampled the Son of God underfoot and and insulted the Spirit of grace. I mean, you know, some people say, you know, how can God allow all this evil stuff to go in the world? If God loves us so much, well, you know what? God showed his love ultimately. There, there's no greater love than a person could show by allowing his son to die for sinners. His son who never committed any wrong, who never sinned, to allow him to suffer for our sin. There's no greater love than that. What more could the father do? There is no other sacrifice. And so what the writer is telling these Hebrew Christians, hey, if you go back to the old sacrifices, you're insulting the Spirit. You're insulting the Holy Spirit. You're insulting the Father who who had to watch his son die on the cross for you. That's what he's trying to get across to these guys. And then he reminds them how they endured persecution in the earlier days. Because, you know, just like us, you know, we, we, when you become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ and you're forgiven, man, don't you want to tell the world? You're so, you're so full of excitement. It doesn't matter who you talk to. You've you got to share that with you. And sometimes you face some persecution, right? Family members, boy, that's a big time. 
You know, they're like, oh, man, you're one of them. You know? I had this friend I was working with, and it was funny. You know, I, I had just gotten out of the military. I just got hired on at IBM, and there was this guy that was like, he was like almost like my best bud. I mean, he, was, he, he really liked me. I mean, he wasn't homosexual, but he really liked me. And I'm sorry, <laughs> just, he was a nice guy. We had a lot of stuff in common. And uh, we were just talking, and then one day I happened to mention about my faith in Christ. And he said, oh, you're one of those? And from that day on, he went and talked to me. And every time he walked by, he goes, you're one of those. You know, it's like, what? You know, but it didn't matter. I love Jesus. You know, okay, I lost you as a friend, but that's okay, you know. In those days, he reminds the man that you endured persecution. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. I mean, it's like, you can take everything I want. I've got Jesus, man. You can take everything I have. I've got the Lord. Who cares? He says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. And back, remember back in the day when you were so excited about your love for the Lord? I mean, you're just so excited about your salvation. So he concludes with verse 35, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Your confidence, your faith, it's going to be rewarded. But you have need of endurance. I believe the Spirit is saying that to you and I today, that we need endurance. You know, endurance, the only way endurance comes is through trials. It only comes through the testing of your faith. But we need that. God is trying to produce men and women of faith. And he's building that faith in us. And sometimes it's through difficult trials and through testings, through persecutions. But hang on there. Hang on to your faith. Don't, don't grow like these Hebrews do. Like, man, I just want to go back. I'm tired. I'm tired of this. Don't give up. Jesus is returning soon. And he has his reward with him. And he says, if anyone draws back from the life of faith, man, God is not pleased with him. You try to start earning your salvation or, or earning God's love by your works, you're not going to please God. You might please other people around you. You might feel good about yourself, but that doesn't please God. It's faith that pleases God. But he encourages them and us this morning. He says, but, but we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So how does all of this apply to you and I this morning? Again, we've been declared righteous by faith in Christ's death and sacrifice. We're the just, those of you that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ this morning. And those of us that have made that commitment of faith in Christ, we've got to continue to live by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. Don't look to yourselves in any way. Don't draw back into old traditions or the old covenant. Don't let anyone tell you it's Jesus plus, whatever it is. Don't, don't let them. That, that's legalism. It's Jesus alone. It's Christ alone. Don't substitute anything for Jesus. Having begun in faith, don't try to be perfected by works. See, our faith in Christ will be rewarded. Why? Because Christ is faithful. 
so the just shall live by faith. Why don't you stand up and let's just thank the Lord for this. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you this morning. Lord, we all thank you this morning for your salvation. Lord, what a freeing thing to realize that, uh, Lord, we don't have to strive to please you. You already love us. Lord, you loved us even before we loved you by sending your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. Lord, I thank you. I hope each and every person here this morning is encouraged knowing that they just need to trust in you and what you did, the finished work on the cross. Lord, everything else that we do, is just, it's just out of love for you. It's not trying to earn please your, your, uh, your satisfaction, your, uh, uh, being pleased with us. We're just responding in love. And so I just thank you for that, Lord. Now, Father, I pray for each and every person here, Lord. I don't know every single person here. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has never bended the knee to you, has never humbly come to you with a true heart saying, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not have that relationship with you, that this morning they realize that it doesn't matter if they're good, if they've gone to church. Lord, it, it just matters if they've admitted that they're a sinner, they've confessed their sins, they've repented or turned away from them, and they've asked you to come into their heart to be their Lord and Savior. It's just that simple. And so, Father, I just pray for those who may not have a relationship with you this morning, Lord, that, Lord, that they would understand that you died on the cross for their sins as well. And that, you, Lord, you rose again, proving that your sacrifice was accepted from the Father. And that, Lord, now you are in heaven and you are willing to offer your forgiveness to anyone who will come to you. You will turn away no one. And so we thank you for that, Lord, this morning. And, Father, I just thank you for each and every person here this morning. I pray that they might be encouraged this morning and this week, Lord. I pray that, Lord, you would just restore to each one of us the joy of your salvation. And so we thank you and we bless you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.